Hebrews 11, would you please turn to Hebrews 11 or follow along in your bulletin. I'm going to read verses 35 to 40, actually just the second part of verse 35 to 40. Here we go. Some were tortured, refusing to accept their release. Let me, let me back up, all right? Um, the word that should go before this is by faith, because that's the word that we see all throughout Hebrews. So let me just, just wanted to say that. By faith, some were tortured, refusing to receive release or refusing to accept release so that they might rise to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. We need to hear it. We need to hear it not just with our physical ears, the senses of hearing, but we need to hear it with spiritual understanding. And so I pray that you would help us today. I pray your Holy Spirit would come in great power. Speak now through your word. Help me to speak with clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've, we've come to the end of this great faith chapter. And it might be worth just doing a quick flyover to see the kind of the lay of the land that we've covered. So we're going to do that. Just a, a flyover at like 10,000 feet. Okay, we're not going to dig into the weeds um, of the first 35 verses. We don't have time to do that. But we're just going to do a quick flyover to see where we've come in Hebrews chapter 11. It's known as the faith chapter or the the chapter that goes through the honor roll of the faithful, those who, have, who walked with God and had faith, and by faith, they endured and persevered to the very end. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that faith is the God-given ability to trust in the future he has promised us. It's not the ability for you and I to create the future we want. And praise his name. His futures that he's promised us is way better than anything we could figure out. So it's the God-given ability to trust in the future God has promised us, not the ability for you and I to create the future we want. Verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, that those things in the future, the conviction of things not seen. And as we go through Hebrews 11, the things not seen are this heavenly city that is before us. And so it's this ability, God-given ability. He helps us to trust in the future he's promised. Verse 6 instructs us that the object of our faith is the true and living God. It's not a God of our own making, of course. It's the true God. And so it points us to the nature and character of God. Verse 6 says, Now without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
So we need to believe two things. Faith is believing two things about God. One, that he exists, or more literally, that he is. That he is the eternal, self-existent God. He's never growing, never changing, never becoming. He is and always has been and always will be. And we need to believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He is a rewarder. He is generous. He's giving. He is self-giving. I don't mind if your kids make a little noise, please. Okay? I, trust me, I don't mind at all. Furthermore, verse 6 tells us that true faith seeks God. It seeks him. He's the rewarder of those who seek him. He rewards those who come after him. It's those who draw near to God. And finally, verse 6 tells us that this is the kind of faith that pleases God. And in fact, without faith, without this faith, faith defined by Hebrews 1 through 6, without this faith, it's impossible to please him. Not unlikely, not extra hard, it's impossible to please God without faith. And then the rest of the the bulk of the chapter is it unfolds for us the stories of these men and women who by faith walked with God, enduring to the very end. These are those who, these are the men and women who make up the great cloud of witnesses that we're going to hear about probably next week when Reed is back. By the way, Reed's doing really well, doing much better than last time he had this surgery, so we praise God for that. But it's this great cloud of witnesses it's those who are part of the honor roll of the faithful. And so we heard about um, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and David and Samuel and all the rest, right? Rahab. These, were, these are part of the honor roll of the faithful, And the way this chapter ends might be a bit of a shock to us. Because before verse 35, it talks about how these people conquered kingdoms, they shut the mouths of lions, they, uh, they escaped the edge of the sword, they obtained promises. These all sound like epic, adventurous, victorious scenes, and they are. And then the last five verses, starting in the second part of verse 35, essentially says, by faith, many suffered terribly. By faith, many suffered terribly. And so it might be a bit of a shock to our system. Wait a second. But it shouldn't surprise us. Remember the aim of the author of the book of Hebrews. These were Christians who were suffering. These were Christians who had, some of them had been thrown in jail. Not because of crimes they committed, but they'd been thrown in jail and others had been um, accused of crimes and been punished and experienced hardship because they helped their friends who were thrown in jail. Some perhaps were facing death. It doesn't appear from Hebrews that any of them had died yet, but some of them were facing death. And these Hebrew Christians were tempted to abandon their faith in Christ because of the price they were now paying for their faith in Christ. And the author wants them to be strong. He wants them to remain steadfast. He wants them, these are phrases from earlier in the book of Hebrews, to not drift. 
He wants them to not neglect this great salvation that they have in Christ. He wants them to not shrink back in their faith. And so along with Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Moses and David, the author mentions these people. Their names are not mentioned. We, we kind of have clues as to who he might be talking about. But he mentions these whose names will be forever remembered, remembered in heaven who, because of their faith, suffered. And they suffered by faith. And although you and I will probably never suffer like those that we're going to hear about today, it's important that we pay attention. It really is important that we pay attention to this because the New Testament's clear that every Christian will suffer in some way because of their commitment to Christ. Every true Christian will suffer in some way specifically because of their commitment to Jesus. Here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12. He said, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life, that's a Christian, right? Christians desire to live a godly life in Christ. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. 1 Peter 4.12, Peter says, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So he says, don't be surprised when this happens. Don't see it as something that's strange, but see it as something that's part and parcel of walking with Christ. So let's let's look briefly at verses 35 to 38 and see how these suffered by faith. Starting in the second part of verse 35, it says others were tortured, not accepting their release. Others, so some were tortured. The word that's translated tortured tells us what kind of torture device was used. It was, I think it's called a tympanum or something like that. It's this round circular thing that a person would be stretched out over or spread out on the face of and they would be clubbed over and over again. So some were tortured in that way and they were tortured and they were given the opportunity to be released and they said no. Verse 36 says, others suffered mocking and flogging. So they were mocked, they were derided, they were scorned because of their trust and their faith in God and their faithfulness to God. Some were flogged. If that's the same kind of flogging that Jesus experienced, it wasn't just whipped, but there were shards of glass and bone in the whip so it would tear open even more profusely the the flesh of the person being being flogged they were they were put in chains and imprisonment we know for sure jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks in jeremiah chapter 20 there's another place in where jeremiah is thrown into a pit verse 37 says they were stoned this is, not just, this is not a neighborhood rock fight between two adolescent boys, right, with rocks where someone comes home with a cut on their face or, you know, something like that, hurt feelings. These stones were big, and they were, they were for the purpose of crushing bones and skulls, and it was always for the point of killing the person being stoned. The prophet Zechariah was stoned in the courts of the Lord's house in 2 Chronicles 24. Tradition tells us that Jeremiah was also stoned to death. Of course, 
uh, Stephen probably is not being talked about here, but we know Stephen was the first Christian martyr in the church age, and he was stoned. In Matthew 23, 37, Jesus describes Jerusalem as the, as the city that stoned the prophets that were sent to her. Verse 37 goes on to say that they were sawn in two. Probably speaking of Isaiah, tradition tells us Isaiah may have been sawn in two and that was how he was killed. They were killed with a sword. They went around in skins of sheep and goats. They suffered deprivation due to hostility. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated. The word mistreated speaks of the hostile mistreatment. They were outcasts on the run, wandering about in, about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. This is what God's people have suffered. This, this is what the, the author of the book of Hebrews says. They suffered, all of these people did, and they did it by faith. They all suffered by faith. Now we look at this and we might be, might, might be tempted to think, well, I've never suffered like that and I'm certain that I won't. And praise God, that's probably true. But then in the back of our minds, we might wonder, I, don't, I wonder if you do, I have before. In fact, I did just recently reading a story. I, we wonder, would I be faithful if called on to? Would I be faithful? Have you ever thought that before? When you read like Fox's Book of Martyrs or read some of these accounts? I, I read about a guy named Thomas Cranmer. Just read, in the 1500s, he was a leader in the Church of England and uh, during the time of the Reformation. And he was probably the most, the most well-known leader in the Church of England, so in the whole country. He, he was uh, the, the main author of the Common Book of Prayer. And uh, Thomas Cranmer, when Queen, um, Mary Queen of Scots came into power, she began persecuting the Reformed Church, the non-Catholic Church, to bring them back under the Catholic banner. And uh, she was called Bloody Mary for a reason. She executed many Christians. And Thomas Cranmer was, he was, uh, he was, treated, he was treated with hostility. He was, he was warned. He was falsely accused. He was tortured. He was flattered. And eventually he gave in. They wrote up a statement where he re recanted all of his teachings. And he signed it with his right hand. That's the first part of the story. I'm going to tell you the last half later. It's not the end of the story. But under that intense pressure, he gave in. Charles Spurgeon was asked a question similar to this one time, and I think specifically he was asked, would you be willing, would you be willing to burn for your Savior, for your Lord? And I love his answer. I find it so helpful. This is how we should answer. This is how we should think, not just answer. He said, it's hard for me to say while sitting in this comfortable home on this cushioned chair, right? But if the time came for me to burn for my Lord, I am sure that he would give the grace for me to do so. You see, this probably won't ever happen to us, but we do face all kinds of hardships and trials for which we can walk through and suffer by faith or not. 
We need to take the counsel of Spurgeon to heart. And today we need to determine with the strength and help of the Spirit, which we desperately need, that we will press on with Jesus no matter what, trusting him, trusting that he will give us the grace we need to endure, and he'll give it to us just when we need it. Corey Tenboom, I love this, this account from her, her book, The Hiding Place, where she, she talks, it's a, it's a conversation between her and her dad, and she shares how she learned this lesson from her dad. Um, she was asking her dad, because they were hiding Jews in their home in a secret room, and, and she was asking her dad, what if we're caught? Will we have courage? to face whatever consequences because we feel like we're doing the right thing. And her dad, he was so wise. And so I'm like, I'm gonna steal this from him so I can, you know, use this for myself. And her dad, listen to this conversation. Father sat down on the edge of the narrow bed and said, Corey, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? Corey said, I sniffed a few times considering this. Why, just before we get on the train, Exactly. And our wise father, this is Corey's dad, our wise father in heaven knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, we will look into our heart and find the strength we need just in time. Amen? Amen? That's good news. God is gracious. And no doubt those who suffered that are... The accounts are given to us in Hebrews 11. That's exactly what God did for them. Just in time, they had the strength, the grace to suffer well and to to do it by faith and to endure it and to persevere. Notice what God says about these people. It's amazing. It's one of the most precious praises of God's people in the Bible. I said God says about them. I I say that because obviously God's the divine author of the Bible, right? It says this about these who suffered like this. It says, they are those of whom the world was not worthy. The world's not worthy of them. Don't you want that said of you? There's something inside of you, not because you're martyred for Jesus necessarily, but because you... Have faith and follow Christ through thick and thin. You trust him, you look to him, of whom the world was not worthy. The world was unworthy of these men and women of faith. Now, of course, the world considered them unworthy. The world considered them troublemakers and losers and outcasts. The world considered them unworthy of life and dignity and respect and comfort and approval and honor. All of this, according to the world, these were not the cool kids. Jeremiah would have never been mistaken for one of the cool kids, ever. (laughs) I assure you of it. John the Baptist either, or Isaiah, or any of them. They were not considered the hipsters. The world felt itself diminished by the presence of these 
men and women of faith. The world said, the world is a worse place because of people like you. And yet, the God of the universe, the Lord of glory, said the world is not worthy of them. The God who his words are infinitely more important than the words of anyone else commends them and praises them and says, I love these, these precious ones. The world's not worthy of them. Have you ever heard the phrase being on the wrong side of history? We kind of hear that a lot these days, right? Being on the wrong side or the right side of history, usually it's, usually it's used in, in kind of a manipulative or coercive way to help to get people in line or to make people feel like they're stupid or idiotic for believing things they believe. You ever heard that before? You, you want to be on the right side of history, don't you? Or we are going to be seen as those on the right side of history. According to the world, these people were all on the wrong side of history. Jeremiah, I know, have no doubt Jeremiah heard something of the effect or to the effect in his own tongue and get in line, get with the program. Stop being so negative. Don't you understand we've progressed, Jeremiah? Don't you want to be on the right side of history? Isaiah, fall in line with everyone else. They were seen as those on the wrong side of history. But the question is, were they really? God doesn't think so. The world was not worthy of them. History is the story of God's redemptive purposes being worked out for his glory. That's what history's all about. And so these men and women were on the right side of history, according to God. Their names, not only that, I would say even more importantly, their names will echo into eternity for the praise and exaltation of God. See, we have to understand there's only two societies at the end of the day. There's only two. There are those who are of God and those who are of the world. There's only two. There's only two cities. There's only two cities at the end of the day. There's the city of man, which is from below, and there's the city of God, which is from above. God says, this world is not worthy of these, but heaven is. God says the world is not worthy of these, but I am. God says the city of man, which is bound for destruction, is not worthy of these, but the city of God is. And isn't that all that matters? It's all that matters. What was it about these people? What fueled their faith? What fueled their life to suffer by faith? such that the world was not worthy of them, such that God said of them, the world's not worthy of them. What was it about them? What fueled their faith? There's two things that, that are, we, more could be said, but our text points out two things. First, their faith showed they longed for God's praise 
more than man's. Guys, I struggle with this. The fear of man is a snare, isn't it? Caring, I mean, being so concerned about what people think and what they say. The fear of God, caring about what he thinks, what he says is a fountain of life. So these people, their face showed they, they longed for the praise of God rather than the praise of others. Verse 38 says, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They were commended through their faith. What does that mean? They received commendation. They received God's approval. They received God's praise. They received God's smile. God saw their faith and loved their faith. They were commended by their faith. This was stated at the very beginning of the chapter in verse 2 when it says, For by faith the people of old received their commendation. We saw this stated a little differently in verse 6 when it says, Without faith it's impossible to please him. So the aim of these men and women was primarily to please the Lord and not others and not themselves. You see, living for the approval of others, the praise of the world strangles faith. It chokes the life out of faith. It kills faith. And actually, it goes beyond that. It actually makes faith impossible. It actually makes believing in God impossible. Listen to how Jesus says this in John 5, He said this, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? When you receive glory, praise from one another, and you don't seek the praise, the glory that comes from God, how can you believe? It's a rhetorical question. You can't. You can't. I can't. We can't. You can't have saving, enduring faith while you are looking at others and longing for their adulation and approval and praise. Faith looks for the glory and praise that comes from the only God. And that's why the world was not worthy of these men and women because that's what they looked to. They received their commendation from God and they were satisfied with that. They didn't receive what was promised in this life, but they were commended for their faith. And the second thing that fueled these believers was their faith showed that they desired God's eternal reward more than temporary relief from trouble. Verse 35 says, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise to a better life. New American Standard says, So that they might rise to a better resurrection. The author is pointing us to the return of Christ, our blessed hope. For these suffering saints, God's eternal reward was, it was not pie in the sky, it was real. 
It was so real. Remember back in verse 1? It was the, the um, how does he put it, the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence or the, the, the substance of things not seen. It was something that was real. They held on to it before their eyes. They put it before their eyes. I remember hearing one time how Jonathan Edwards prayed before he preached the famous sermon that sparked the Great Awakening in his area. And he said, Lord, put eternity before my eyes and before the eyes of my hearers. Put eternity before my eyes and our eyes. These suffering saints longed for God's eternal reward. Hebrews 11.16 describes the faithful as those who desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And the last part of the verse says, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. God is proud to be called their God, and it's the same now. Those who, by faith, look to the eternal city and glory in it and desire it and seek it, can also hear by faith God saying to you, I am not ashamed to be called your God. I am proud to be called your God. So rich and full of power and glory is our eternal reward that it actually significantly outweighs present suffering and hardship. And these are from the lips of Paul, who suffered way more than you and I ever will. He suffered in one day, probably, more than you and I ever will. Romans 8.18, here's what Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. He doesn't get the scales out and say, "Uh," he's like, it's not even worth comparing. It just, there's no comparison. The glories that will be revealed in the future, future reward from God, Paul says it a little differently in a little bit more descriptive way in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 when he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Far beyond all comparison. And he describes his affliction today. Okay? Go read 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 and that's Paul's understanding of light and momentary affliction. Stoned? Uh, flogged multiple times, um, put in prison multiple times, shipwrecked twice, I think, um, on the run constantly, light and momentary. Our text tells us there were some who were tortured and refused release because they wanted to rise to a better life. They wanted to rise to a better life, amazing. And those who live like this, those who think like this, the world is not worthy of them. You remember that Thomas Kramer I told you about him earlier? The guy who signed his own recanting statement? Well, they were going to burn him at the stake anyways. He came to the stake, and to add insult to injury, whenever someone was burned at the stake, at least this seems to, be, this seems to have happened often, there was, a message pre- there, was, there was a message preached by their accusers. Imagine standing at the stake, you're about to be burned, and someone preaches an hour-long message condemning you. Okay? So we listened to this message, and the, the preacher said, but, but Mr. Cranmer has recanted, and he's going to now speak. And Thomas Cranmer, tears streaming down his face, said, 
I have sinned, I'm paraphrasing, I've sinned against my Lord. I take back everything that was written on that statement of recantation. And with this right hand, this right hand that signed that statement will burn first. And as the flames came up, he stuck his right hand in there, unflinching, so that he might rise to a better life. This is faith. This is an enduring faith. What is your life of faith whereby you persevere? What does it look like? They suffered by faith. They didn't lose their faith as they went through it. And amazingly, they, these people didn't even receive Christ. This is all Old Testament saints. They, they didn't see the coming of Jesus. They received prophecies and promises, promises of the coming Messiah, but they didn't receive the Messiah himself. Verse 39 says, All these, though commended by their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What was promised? What has God provided for us that is better? Christ, our Redeemer. Christ, the radiant Son of God. Christ, the faithful and merciful High Priest who's made like us in every single way. Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. Christ, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Though we are waiting for Christ to come again, no doubt, and we should, we should long for that that, his, that, that eternal reward, you and I, in one sense, we have received what these saints longed to see. That's what Jesus said. Matthew 13, 17, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Which means you and I have even greater reason to believe greater resources to run with endurance, a clearer hope to help us not shrink back in our faith. Because we have Christ. He's come. He's coming again. Praise his name. We long for that, but he has come. And he has reconciled us to God by his blood. That's why Hebrews 12 tells us to, that we run the, mar- the, the marathon race of life as we look to what? Christ, Jesus. Let us run the race with endurance looking to Christ or fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, that you may not shrink back in your faith. Whatever you find yourself facing right now or tomorrow or next week or next year, that you may not shrink back in your faith or be faint-hearted. So we look to Jesus. We look to Christ. When? Now. And always. Always. 
right? The life, the death, the resurrection, the intercession of Christ, knowing that Christ right now, this very second, after having come, the incarnation, he lived, he died in atoning death, he rose from the dead, he ascended to the Father's right hand, and there he intercedes for us. Night and day. In fact, Hebrews 7.25 says it so beautifully. Christ is able to save to the uttermost, perfectly, completely, forever. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. So we fix our eyes on Christ, the perfect, sufficient, and merciful Savior. We fix our eyes on him. We run the race with endurance, faithful endurance, looking to Christ. And this enables us to persevere through whatever may come. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. We're so grateful for this chapter, Lord. So grateful for all of your word. But we thank you for the stories of these men and women this great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. Help us, Father, to look to Christ. Give us grace and strength by your Spirit to fix our eyes on him and confidently and courageously looking to him, be ready to endure whatever comes our way, knowing you will give us the strength just in time to endure. In Jesus' name, amen.